You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rain had turned the streets a shiny black. It coated windshields with a film that cut visibility to inches and turned potholes into lakes that trapped unwary drivers. All month long, Chicago had been hit by storms that put as much as three inches of water on the ground in an hour, but left the air as thick and heavy as a wet parka. Tonight's storm was one of the worst of the summer. I'd come up empty in all the likely spots, bus stops, coffee shops, even the sleazier nightclubs that might not have carted a bunch of tweens. I was about to give up when I saw lights flashing in the cemetery to my right. I pulled over and rolled down my window. Above the rumble of rain on my rooftop, I could hear high-pitched chatter and bursts of nervous laughter. I zipped up my rain jacket and walked down the street, looking for the cemetery gates. They were padlocked. A notice board read that Mount Moriah was permanently closed. Trespassers would be violated. But if you had a grave to tend, you could call the number on the board. Sarah Peretsky created female private investigator V.I. Warshawski for her 1982 novel, Indemnity Only. She pioneered women in crime fiction, created Sisters in Crime, The British crime writers awarded her the Cartier Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement. Blacklist won the Gold Dagger from the British crime writers for Best Novel of 2004. Her new novel is Breakdown. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. It's great to be here. Thanks, Rick. Sarah, one of the things that really attracted me to these books and this book in particular is the the sense of depth of the characters' lives. We, we get not just the crime, but we get a full sense of her life and her immersion in the world of her her friends, her family, and, and especially, too, in the, the, polit- the whims of political whimsy that move through her life and our all of our lives. I think that the 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 winds of politics are something that I feel in a in a particular way and I don't know why why they bother me more maybe than they bother a lot of other people or other writers but one of the things that has changed for me in writing about her I'm glad that she feels that the, that you feel there's a lot of depth and nuance around her and her life when I started I think that I hadn't thought through her character in the way that I have been with her for 30 years. And so for me, the pleasure in writing about her and writing about the people around her is to go into more, ever more interior depth in their lives. One of the things that um, starts this book is you start it with the acknowledgments, which I thought was a kind of an interesting uh, twist. Often they're at the end, and, and you tell us up from the get-go that uh, Ruital Mental Hospital is something you made up. And I, I really like the depth that you bring to that uh, creation. Talk about uh, creating that. And, and I'm just curious, why did you put those up front? Oh, I put them up front because I, I'm very aware of, of how much I owe to the people who help keep me honest. I did an event with Denise Mina in Glasgow this past April, and uh, these two sisters came. It was one of their 90th birthday, and the other one was 89, as they announced when they got up in the Q&A, and, and the 90-year-old said, I'm not going to try to imitate her accent, but she said, you put so many people in the acknowledgments, and yet you only put your name on the jacket cover. I think that's very cheeky of you, and they clearly <laughs> should get equal credit with you. So I thought that was pretty funny. This book begins with VI looking for some tweens and uh, of friends of her, of her, uh, some cousin. children of, that are in her cousin's care. They're out and about. And these kids are all entranced by Carmilla. So talk a little bit about creating that and your inspiration for that. This is such, you, you're really having a lot of fun with your look at the tweens in this book. I just, I'm so fascinated by the vampire and the shapeshifter phenomenon. I don't understand it, but 
I have a granddaughter who's 17 now, and when she was a tween, she lived for Stephanie Meyer in the Twilight series. And I would say, why? And she'd say, oh, I don't know, Granny. I just like them. So I had no insight into the tween mind from that. But uh, Carmilla, Queen of the Night, was created by Sheridan Le Fanu back in the 1850s, and mm -hmm. he was one of the early masters of the horror and thriller genre. So there are a couple of places in the book where I'm tipping my hat to some of the um, early writers. In fact, there are four characters in the book who are named for characters in the Maltese Falcon. And I'm going to have a little quiz on my website where the person who can name all four of them will get a signed free book. Um, so, so it's one of the things that I enjoy doing is is being part of the continuum of people who created this form. Well, you know, one of the things that it so interests me that there's this thing with the adolescent girls and the supernatural and this kind of uh, interest in um, things that are unreal or at the edge of reality. And I think that you do a good job of, you know, probing that and creating those kids that way. I think in some ways, I remember when I was 11, my older brother gave me Dracula to read, and it terrified me so much that I, I didn't sleep for weeks. And um, I think it's the sexuality in it, rereading it as an adult. I have to confess, it still terrifies me. But I can see how much sex there is in it that's that's not blatant and obvious, but it's all... the and that as an adolescent or pre-adolescent girl, it, that's very frightening, or at least for some girls, as it was for me. And so I think some of what's happening with the contemporary vampire book is that it allows a little bit of titillation, but the vampires are very benign. They're not like Dracula, and so they're more protective. So the girls get both the thrill and then the sense that they're secure at the same time. Yeah, it's a, it, I guess it's a kind of a wish fulfillment in a sense. So, yeah, somebody who's going to look out after you. I also think in America in general, maybe in the world in general, when, when you're going through rocky times, it's when there's more interest in the supernatural. And um, the mediums came, became really popular during the big economic crises of the 1880s and 90s, and I guess... And We're, spiritualism, right. It, well, spiritualism and all those seances and so on. and The table knockers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Madame Blavatsky. I love that name. What a great name. Now, uh, I, I love this opening because it immerses us in this murky, rainy night, and, and we have, there's a murder from the get-go. And then you do a great job. You hit the rewind button. You get us partway in there, and you hit the rewind button and give us a, the kind of alternate adult reality with a VI in the grips of a very—you have a lot of fun with GEN. <laughs> the so. Global Entertainment Network. They came into Chicago in a book that I wrote called Hard Time a number of years ago. So I didn't create them fresh for this scene, but they are very much of— they are very much the avatar of the muscular 24-hour cable networks that have, uh, in my opinion, completely destroyed and undermined incredible journalism in the United States. Well, you do have a lot of fun, yes. You, you, you really take on faux news in this, as, as, as it's sometimes called. And, and <laughs> <laughs> No comment on the air, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is my air. <laughs> we could say whatever we want to. Now, uh, as you created this, uh, you have a whole superstructure. You have a, a very Glenn Beckian figure in there, and you have a Rupert Mur Murdochian figure in there. So talk about creating these characters, because you have a lot of fun with them. You know, uh, Marilyn Stasio reviewed Breakdown in the New York Times on uh, January 8th, and she said, no one ever accused Peretsky of being a nuanced writer, and I thought, yeah, well, the last person who did, they never found his body. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it is, I don't know if it's a strength, a weakness, or it just is that that my evildoers often are, are I, I have never felt able to plumb the 
the emotional heart of Dick Cheney, for instance. I see him... <laughs> Is there one? <laughs> well, there you have it. I mean, I see him as a kind of a cutout figure. And so when I created my um, the, the head of my news division... And now I'm feeling like an idiot. I can't remember his name. Wade Lawler is the is the main... Uh, Weeks, is it? Yes, Harold Weeks. Um, and I could just kind of see him... I used to work in the corporate world. I was a marketing manager for a multinational insurance company. And we had some really good people on senior staff. But we also had just people who... It was all about power. It was all about putting other people down. And, um, and I see... Harold as as one of these one of these people who's just he's so used to being in charge and making other people's lives miserable he lives in a constant world of entitlement and that's the balloon that I always feel like I have to prick I, I, I prick I think is maybe an understatement <laughs> <laughs> I think you take go after it with a large well. sawtooth blade <laughs> Multiple yeah, times. No nuance here. <laughs> well, no, it's exciting and well-written and, and enjoyable. And one of the things that is so interesting about this book is that you do a great job of pulling us in, and everything seems pretty straightforward, but the more we get into it, this is a very, very complicated machine. And there's lots of uh, gears and levers moving on. There's lots of characters and lots of plots. And I'm just curious, for you as a writer, I, I just can't even conceive of how you kind of uh, write this book? Do you just start at word one and go forward, or do you have some kind of idea where you want to go? Mm, I know where I'm going, sort of. And uh, this book, chapters 12 and 13 in the book, which is where VI goes down to the University of Chicago campus trying to find uh, an old law school friend who's who's really in desperate straits. That's originally where I began the book, and it that beginning, I still like it. I still really liked it, but it didn't take me in the direction that I needed the story to go. And so I finally had to take it out. And then I love the friend. Her name is Layden. And I just, I needed a role for her in the book because I loved her so much that I, that I just couldn't bear to let her go. So um, I start knowing what the crime is, knowing who committed it and why, but it's very hard for me to figure out how to actually construct the story. I really, um, I envy Phyllis James and Elizabeth George both say that they outline in great detail, and Phyllis says that she just writes the chapter she's in the mood to write because her outline is so detailed, and I wish I could think it through like that. It would save me a lot of backing and forthing and discarding what isn't working. But I can't think in that kind of way. Well, I think that's what gives your book such a, a wonderful organic feel. It feels like really these books are heartfelt. The characters feel real. The situations feel real. There's a real flow to this to this book. I think that makes it, it seems very whole. You can't pick it apart. And I think that's what well, makes it. that's good. Because, you know, I think you always fear that, that it, Readers will read it and think that it, they see the scotch tape and chewing gum. And oh no, no! I, it's um, it's like uh, going slowly into an ever more complicated machine where you can't. And what's nice too is and <laughs> is that a, as I was reading this book, I, I knew I had all the data in my head, but you need VI there to help you put it together. And I think that's one of the great things about the way you write your mysteries is that even if you give us everything. We can't quite put it together. We, we need and want to have the characters there to help us do that. I think the, the, the kind of book that I write, it's not who did it that is as much of a mystery as the how and the why. And also, will the girl detective live to fight another day? I always think uh, there was a, a writer, Nicholas Freeling, who had a Dutch character Dutch policeman and he his books were in the first person and then in the last book he killed the guy in the middle of the book and suddenly <laughs> the books were finished by the dead guy's wife and I think that is so rotten that's such a cheating thing to do I never read another word he wrote <laughs> so I never would kill VI off although it's touch and go in this book whether whether she's actually going to make it as it is in so many of them 
Well, that's one of the things, too, I think that you do really well is that uh, VI, she, she's approaching 50, and, and but she's still, you know, a woman of action. And she's really down there with, with in you know, in the dirt and, and, you know, literally in the dirt, in the mud carrying people around. And I think that, you know, you make that convincing. And that's so nice to see, you know, uh, uh, an adult woman behaving like an adult woman and with the capabilities of an adult woman. You know, I, a couple of books ago, I brought her young cousin Petra into the books. And I was thinking then that I would keep aging VI in real time and that Petra would start doing some more of the heavy lifting. But I realized I am, I, I'm too attached to VI and I can't, uh, I can't let her take... Uh, I can't let her go in the wings and let someone else be in center stage. So I I don't know how I'm going to handle that. But I like her being out there in the mire, as you say, and getting not just her hands but her best party dress dirty. Boy, I hated to see that party dress go. That was you have a lot of fun with the clothes in this book. <laughs> I mean, you, you oh, I also have a tip of my hat in this book. My grandfather Joseph Peretsky was a dress cutter, and uh, God, he could cut anything. He cut for Lord and Taylor back in the days when they all, on all the department stores, had their own couture departments. So the I, V.I.'s dress I had it made by Joseph Peretsky, only I spelled his name in the, with the original Polish spelling instead of the anglicized spelling. So um, I just had a lot of fun with um, with all the different characters that I was giving little little nods and winks to either well, my history or the history of the form with. Well, you know, that's, I think, one of the things that makes the books uh, seem so alive from within, that there's a, a sense of reality, and that's what uh, helps gives the books a sense of depth. Well, that's, that's very generous of you. I think I write... Um, I feel like sometimes I'm like the Grandma Moses of mystery writing. I never studied literature. I never studied writing. My degrees were in politics and history, and um, so I'm. There's I have a friend in Chicago who calls herself an autodidact, which sounds to me like an extinct bird. But um, I'm a duck-billed autodidact. <laughs> but uh, so I. I always feel that I'm not quite sure that I know what I'm doing with them or what I'm doing as a writer, but I do. I love language. I love I love books, and I write really out of the passions that I have. I was on a panel once with a couple of crime writers, Liza Cody, who's a very under-known British crime writer. I'm quite familiar with her, yes. Oh, are you? Yeah. Oh, excellent, yeah. excellent. I think she's one of the really gifted... Mm-hmm. writers of in this or any genre but she did six books about a private eye named Anna Lee and she sat on the panel talking about all the things that she wrote down about Anna that she knew she was this 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 not this 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 and I thought my god I just plunged in with VI and it made me feel like I'm doing it wrong I'm doing it wrong I should have been should have been thinking it through more and I shouldn't let what's going on around me influence me so much but but I I worry I guess I worry and I especially I worry about what's happening with journalism because I think that uh, historically journal investigative journalism is what kept government I won't say honest but kept it from being utterly corrupt and, and running rampant yeah with the way that newsrooms have been gutted, both in broadcast and in print journalism over the last decade, that we are very lacking in in that that fourth voice of government. Well, that's a big theme in this book. Because so, we, yeah, that's what the book, in a sense, is about. Yeah, it's about Mur- Murray has been. So talk a little bit about creating this kind of uh, sensibility for Murray, what's happened to Murray in his in his job as a reporter, how essentially everything that he, uh, the, everything's been pulled away from behind him and there's nothing left. So he started out in the first book. He and V.I. were kind of colleagues, kind of competitors. But in the early books, what would happen is, I mean, in Chicago, as is true for other places, not maybe every place, but many places, justice really is kind of for sale, and certainly the government is for sale in Chicago. And we all know that 
Barack Obama's Senate seat was for sale. <laughs> Literally. Um, just Illinois just sent its fourth governor to, to prison. For the, in the 40 years I've lived in Chicago, we've had four governors of Illinois in, go to prison on corruption charges. So, um, right. So in the early books, Murray's job was to publicize what happened because if if you couldn't get justice through the courts, you could you could through investigative journalism present a picture of what was going on that would that would shame the courts or the legislatures into acting. And one really great example of that, there's a journalist in Chicago named John Conroy, who spent years covering a just shocking story of police running a torture ring against African-American suspects. And they tortured hundreds of people, and I mean really tortured, with electrodes on their genitals and chaining them to boiling radiators and causing third-degree burns. And Mayor Daley knew about it. He was the state's attorney at the height of this. No one was ever willing to bring charges, to dismiss them. And John Conroy kept this story alive and finally forced the U.S. Department of Justice to look in and take some action when the city, the state, and the county were unwilling to move. And John Conroy does not have a job anymore because his job was cut out from under him. And that's, I find that in some ways my most troubling challenge. If I'm writing a book that has a sort of a reality base to it in terms of contemporary law, justice, and society, which is, I think, where the crime novel sits, where those three things intersect. Um, it's not believable that that my lone PI can go in and clean up this mess with her own bucket. Mm-hmm. It's, as the cat in the hat says, way too big and too tall. I cannot clean it up. So Murray played this role, but as as uh, newspapers and broadcast media began conglomerizing, or whatever the verb is, back in the 90s and and into this decade, then every time they halved their journalism staff, their stock prices would double. So there was every incentive for management to keep gutting newsrooms, and nobody cared anymore about the news. And gosh, I was just in L.A., and um, the hotel where I was staying... They were do, they were previewing the next season's television shows, and this was a news event. I cannot tell you how many journalists were there. They were all behind ropes and barricades, and this is what people are caring about and spending their, their attention on. Their, their, the viewers and readers, that's where their attention is going, but it's also it's the easiest thing for management to do is to send them in that direction. It's the cheapest. You don't have to have a staff. I mean, the Chicago Tribune, which used to be a good mid-market paper, I mean, they, they're, it's pathetic, and I have friends who write for them, and it's just, it's heartbreaking to be a journalist there. And it looks like my weekly reader now. It's It doesn't <laughs> even look like a newspaper. But they closed their Washington bureau. Mm. So any story they're picking up about national politics, they're getting off what remains of the wires. And they're just, and that's the story all over America. So I'm sorry, I'm really ranting, but I'm no, really I troubled agree. by yes. this. Right. That, well, because um, we segment ourselves on the net by what our, what viewpoint we want fed, whether it's on the right or the left or the middle. or It was seen to be the great virtue of the net that you could s- select the news you want. That's turning out to be more of a problem than right. a solution. So so people get into their hidebound mindsets and then there's no way to budge them because there isn't credible... I mean, it was when Reagan got rid of the fairness doctrine, I guess, that it started and... Uh, I don't know where we'll. I don't know where we'll end up, but that's what the challenge was for me with breakdown. Was here's Murray, and you know, Vi yeah, feels sorry for him, but she's a little contemptuous of him too because he's taken this TV job and he has a publicist and and all of that, and then he drags her to this this event at a f- fancy hotel to celebrate 
the cable news guy who they both despise, but Murray's feeling so insecure and his job is at risk and he feels like he has to suck up to the guy. And I mean, yeah, I can totally see doing that. I would be more like Murray. I would not be as virtuous as VI. I would be much more of a shuffler and a trimmer. I don't see that. I, your books are certainly not shuffling and trimming. Yeah, well, VI does all that for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's one of the things I think that uh, informs all of your books. That you know, there's a sense of uh, uh, your books use crime to to discuss political and social issues and the, the way things are changing and generally not for the better. And I'm wondering how much your sense of what riles you get you going on a on a crime plot. I mean, do you just uh, there's a there's a scene in here where a VI sees herself on on the network and she's just really fumingly mad. And I said, that is the author talking right there. That is that is Sarah. She's really, really mad at all this stuff. Well, I, I am. I am really, really angry about it all. I, I just, uh, I grew up in Kansas, and I have a good friend in Chicago who also is from Kansas, and he's the one progressive in a, in a family that's extremely on the right and, and evangelical and uh, not that the two necessarily go hand in hand, but the day after Barack won the 2008 election, his mother called and said, well, I guess we have a socialist terrorist Muslim in the White House now. And it's, there is not a way to say, uh, you know, he may be a good president, a bad president, mediocre, not as good as some of us had hoped, but the fact that some that a network can keep pounding a message that he's a terrorist and a Muslim and get a substantial chunk of the country to believe it, I think is not just outrageous, but really, really frightening. So that's where a lot of breakdown comes from. Now, one of the things I love in terms of the way you've constructed this mystery, uh, I love that we have at the outside, there are kind of like two different things going on that seem to be very different and separated that may or may not prove to not to be the case. And I, it, one of the things that I love is that, that one of the main characters is dead. He, <laughs> <laughs> most of the book, we spend a lot of time getting to know a guy who is dead. You must have a lot of fun with that. Well, you know, part of the, of the shtick of the book is, of course, the Maltese Falcon with uh, Miles Archer, and, and this guy's name is Miles. Um, he's he's not a good guy in the Maltese Falcon, and we all know Sam Spade's line, which I can't quote exactly right, but, you know, when a man's partner is killed, a man's got to do something. So the the sort of extended metaphor here is is that he is a private eye, he was a sleazebag, but when one private eye is killed, and I think I wanted V.I. to say that, and there just never was a... a she comes point, pretty close a couple times. A point in the book where it would have been anything but an unnatural gluing it in. <laughs> um, but one of the things I was sorry about with the book was Miles Wachnick, my sleazy dead private eye, he was tapping into people's cell phones to get their secrets. And I had already turned the book into New York when the Murdoch scandal broke, the phone hacking scandal where they had hired private eyes to, or even their own editorial staff at the News of the World were hacking into cell phones of thousands of people and doing, you know, these just horrendous things, uh, erasing messages on a girl's cell phone so that it would like look to her parents like she was still alive when she had been kidnapped and murdered. and. I mean, they just, they behaved so abominably, and I thought, I was so prescient, but I just, I only, I, I didn't know the half of what these guys could actually do. And Well, I, I think what's interesting, I think, is the, the, one of the things this book really does a good job of is how it exposes how sketchy and uncomfortable texting makes us all. I mean, it's convenient, but... Uh, you have somebody doing something I think that, that I think is really interesting. They're, um, they've got the text messages 
bugged. And that's a very interesting thing. And just that you capture really our unease with text messaging in general. Maybe it's our generations, or I'm older than you, my generation's unease with texting, because of course the kids are at it morning, noon, and night. And, and that's one of the things that I mentioned in Breakdown is the, the these two tweens who are really good buddies, their, uh, their mothers punish them for breaking curfew by forbidding them to text each other. <laughs> and so they have to do the old-fashioned thing, which is mm-hmm. email, and it's just like, how how did email suddenly become old-fashioned? But it is, and I don't even know. I think there's something replacing texting now. I'm not sure what it is, but I can't move fast enough to keep up with the tech changes. Maybe now that Stephen Jobs is dead, the rate of change will slow down a little. <laughs> to keep us a little bit more comfortable. Well, I love, too, there's one part where somebody's downloading Nancy Drew, and I just thought, well, this is a, a herald of the end of civilization. <laughs> 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 that was my my granddaughter again. Um, took her to a, a, a wedding and downloaded Nancy Drew on my iPad for her because that was what she wanted to, it was an interactive Nancy Drew game that she wanted, and that's what VI downloads for the the girls who she's putting up for the night. Now, as a writer, one of the things that you do have a lot of really interesting issues in here. One of the things that like sent me, it's interesting now when we read, we can just we'll read something and go immediately to you know our computer, or our iPad, and look something up and. Uh, one of the things you talk about is the Supreme Court decision uh, that uh, chipping away at Miranda, which I thought was really interesting observation, the single word uh, uh, ruling. Yes, the, the, the court ruled that if you say a word that you have voided your right to remain silent. This court, they really are freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, it's interesting to see how um, these uh, events at a national level, you make them play out within the piece of your mystery, which I think is a really interesting way to do that, it, to to talk about things that, you know, national events. But the mystery is a particularly good genre for a way to get at political events and put them right in the center of the plot and the characters. Well, the police are very aware of all of these court cases and, and what it means for what they can and can't do. I have an acquaintance friend who's a commander of one of the districts downtown, and it, it it's considered the best-run district. We call precincts districts in Chicago. In the city, I mean, every cop in the city who isn't bent wants to be part of that district. <laughs> so they, Dave does everything by the book, and he's one of the people in the acknowledgments. But it's really interesting to go to be with the charge sergeant when somebody comes in with a suspect and the, the, the things that they know that they can and can't do and the most recent court cases and where they can fudge and where they can't. And, they, and the charge sergeant steps the arresting officer through it all. So it's not just an abstraction that, that, that local Local jurisdictions know exactly what's going on, and they are on it like that. Well, so is VI, and there's a great uh, dialogue she has where at the early in the novel where she's being questioned by somebody who doesn't like her, and and he's he's asking her questions in a way, and she says, no, 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 you can't ask this that way. You have to ask it this way because I'm not going to answer that question. I'll answer the question if you were to phrase it in this way because if I answer it phrased in that way, you can accuse me of this. I think that's a really a clever way of, you know, getting something into dialogue. Yes, and also, I mean, I had to be deposed for a, a trial, and it's a, it's a, I did not like it one little bit. And uh, not surprised. And uh, one of the things you learn is that, um, you know, I have a tendency to ramble and talk, and no, you'd better just answer the question that you hear being asked and not try to move beyond it, because... Everything in a courtroom is is a story. It's not it's not justice. It's combating narratives, and so anything you say that can be used in the other person's narrative to make you look bad, boy, they will. So that's what VI is. 
You know, I think murder mysteries, I mean, mystery writers, I think we are, in general, more fearful than the population at large. And so <laughs> VI is expressing my my fears, my doubts, my paranoias. I often think, I wish I had Stephen King's royalties. I'd love a private jet, but I'm glad I don't have his nightmares because <laughs> I think his books are effective because he, he also writes out of what he feels passionate about, and that's what makes them feel very urgent and present. It's not just a game with him at our expense. So I think I imagine this kind of scale of of paranoid fearfulness with maybe P.D. James on the calmest end and Stephen King on the most neurotic end, <laughs> and I'm somewhere in the middle. I'd say you're getting pretty close to the Stephen King end. This, <laughs> this book is fairly, uh, it has a, it, it's not a feel-good book in many ways. It has a happy ending, it does. sort of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things I think that uh, you do really well in this book is to talk, you talk about the the trials of the mentally incompetent. This is another really interesting issue that you that you dive into. And I, and I think you do that in all of your books. You kind of pick and choose things that will help you move the plot that involve us in the characters' lives and, and contribute to the story, but also are just kind of interesting to learn about, too. Yes, yeah, some of that. I have a friend who used to be a, a, an appellate public defender in, in Illinois, and she worked a lot with people who were being held for reasons of mental incompetence. And it can be because uh, they're developmentally disabled or it can be because they're, they're mentally ill. And by and large, they get moved through the system pretty fast and declared fit for trial one way or another, usually through medication. But if if they can't be made fit for trial, it is really like going into the gulag and never getting out because they are outside the judicial process and it's a tribunal of doctors who decide whether or not they're fit to plead. And the whole thing is very nightmarish. Tribunal, that word is just really kind of scary. It makes you think of the Salem witch trials. Yeah, or Soviet Russia or, Mm. you know. I had thought of having VI go undercover in the mental hospital, and fortunately, one of the people I thank in the acknowledgments talked me out of it. He said that would break so many laws that she would lose her license to to practice both law and and as a private eye if she was discovered. And also, he said, you run the risk of getting her in and never being able to get her out because no one would ever agree to be complicit in getting you in because they would lose, like if Lottie Herschel would would lose her medical license if if she signed a false affidavit or whatever you call it for that VI was mentally ill. So, and I think it would have made the book a hundred times longer, more complicated, less believable. So I was really glad he steered me away from that path. Well, I think your books have a kind of a gritty authenticity, and you do a good job, too, of of using the classic mystery trope of literally uh, putting V.I. from the gutter to the king's mansion in a single night (laughs) and in in an unfortunate dress that I don't think ever recovers. Yes, that beautiful red silk fie dress that she wore in hardball to the last political fundraiser she was at. Political fundraisers in Chicago, they're just, they're, you inevitably get, you inevitably have to go to some if you are at all active in in public life in Chicago, and they are horrible events with, even if people have just washed and shaved right before they've come, they always look greasy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a fairly active political life. I understand uh, Bill Clinton writes you. Well, I I do have I am very vain about that, and um, he started writing me when I when he was in the White House and and the Bosnian civil war was going on, and I was very troubled and wrote and thought we should be doing I can't remember I, what I thought we should be doing, but y- you know how you do, dear Mr. President, blah blah blah, sincerely. And about six weeks later, I got back a handwritten four-page letter from him. 
explaining why he had decided on whatever it was he had decided on. I couldn't believe it. It was a it was an incredible letter. And of course, I put it behind plastic and have safeguarded it forever. But I also, I was thinking, he's one of those rare people who really only needs four hours of sleep a night. And his staff, this was my fantasy. I could imagine that the first year or so that he was in office, he's always texting them, buzzing them, whatever, whatever we were doing in 1992 to get in touch with people. And that after a year, they all realized that they that they would turn off their pagers. <laughs> and so then I pictured him walking up and down the West Wing restlessly, trying to find someone to talk to, something to do. So he starts going through the mail in his office and answering it because he just had so much energy. And that was my fantasy. But I met him a couple of times. And boy, I really do miss him. Yeah, I think a lot of us do. Now, uh, one of the things, however, um, I must say that you get a, a, a fair amount of mileage out of, you know, the your the issue that you take with the direction that America is going um, in these books. So, I mean, there must be a kind of, I'm wondering if you have a kind of, a bit of a, a, a discomfort on one hand, the fact that, you know, your character thinks that things are going to hell in a handbasket, uh, powers these books and gives them a lot of passion. But if things were going really good. <laughs> if things were going really good, what would I write about? Oh, I'd find something else. I'd take on the, I have a friend who used to work for a very high-end department store. And um, the sort of hideous things that go on in the dressing rooms of high-end department stores would make a good kind of Jackie Collins book. If, <laughs> if things were going well in America, I'd probably write about that. <laughs> now, uh, I, one of the, in terms of classic mysteries, uh, in, this book has a, a, a past that, that reaches into the, the present. And I think that you, that's one of the things I think that gives this book, you know, a lot of resonance and a lot of feel. This book has, it's prickly. Um, there are a lot of things that you bring up and kind of uh, rise and fall during the part of this book. And there's a really nice reach uh, pretty far back into the past. And, and this, I think, harkens back to your own roots and, and then also reaches into a current political situation with the anti-immigrant fervor that we've seen even rising still now. Yes, I, I, I always have a, an uneasy feeling about the anti-immigrant fervor. I'm, I understand people are worried about jobs, but it's a more, it's a sort of a more gut reaction, a more of a fear of, of difference, I think, than is really fueled by, I mean, like if we sent away every undocumented Hispanic in America, I don't think a lot of work would get done because the jobs that immigrants are doing in meat processing pack plants or a lot of really unpleasant, horrible, back-breaking jobs are jobs that immigrants are willing to take. Um, well, a lot not. of crops are not being harvested in states with strong anti-immigration laws because even if there's high unemployment, people are not willing to do that that work. I mean, there a lot of articles this past fall about Georgia and Colorado fields, just crops rotting in the fields because they couldn't find anyone to work the harvest. You mean those laid-off middle managers aren't signing up right, for a strawberry picking? I know. <laughs> What's the matter? But And, man, I've, I've done a little bit of it in my childhood and adulthood, and I couldn't do it for a day, let alone a year. It's just too physically, really, really back, I mean, literally. But I just think we're a country of immigrants. I mean, even the Indians, after all, they were here first, but they walked over the Bering Straits, as I understand the last, the most recent research suggests and populated the Americas. They, they came from elsewhere. We all came from elsewhere. So why do we get up to be the ones who hold up a sign and, and say, you know, last one in, pull up the, the drawbridge? Well, it's, uh, xenophobia is ever-present. And the, uh, I mean, what's interesting, too, is if you look back in, uh, during the Great Depression, there was a, a similar wave 
of anti-immigrant fervor, just as strong directed at, at uh, the Latin Americans too. Same, it was the same thing. Well, also I'm reading right now um, at, for research on the next book that I'm going to start writing soon, as soon as I really figure out the storyline. But I'm reading a book ab about um, U.S. intelligence in Europe during the run-up to the Second World War and uh, well before our involvement in the war, our our intelligence chiefs in Germany knew about the mass murders of Jews in Central and Eastern Europe, but they wouldn't report it to Washington because they didn't want to stir up public agitation that might allow uh, open immigration of Jews into the United States. So. I mean, I take that personally. That was my family that got eradicated. Mm. Um, so I guess that's why I feel much more on the open borders side. And also, I feel dirty as an American living behind barricades. And every time I travel, I feel more and more depressed, flying. Just a voice comes on the intercom very cheery kind of 1984 voice and and says if you see something say something that's why we'll all be safe <laughs> that's scary yes <laughs> i mean it really does sound like one of orwell's voices coming out of the screen at you oh it it probably is i think <laughs> i <laughs> I think Mr. Orwell would be uh, very unhappy to to see how much uh he only missed it by what 20 years or right. so that's yeah. not too bad now. I also ate a bag of nuts on the plane then the wrappers said caution this product was processed in a place that processes nuts and I thought I'm glad it didn't say caution. This was processed in, processed in a place that that makes car batteries. <laughs> yeah. Warning: these nuts were processed in a place that makes rat poison. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> May have side effects of. Right. Oh, don't you love the? I keep thinking I should do a book about pharmaceuticals because I just love the ads on television. May cause nausea, dizzying, faintness. You know, just say, yeah, I really want to take this drug. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about, uh, you know, I, I love the the sense of story in this is really strong. It's got a lot of stories, and it's it feels, it's also really satisfying. Oh, it's so satisfying to read this book. I mean, it, things aren't perfect at the end, but it's very satisfying. And, I, and that's a, a sense of story that you have that, that I think permeates your books. And talk about just creating your sense of, your sense of what a story that you want to tell. It has to a story that I want to tell has to be about people that I care about, and it can take me quite a long time, many months, to find the right characters, the people who carry the story forward. And I know that I'm ready to write when I start hearing dialogue in my head among among characters that I'm thinking of. When they start speaking, then I know that I've got the right characters. Up to that point, they're just they're just figures, and they aren't real or believable. I do wonder saying this. What is, I hear voices in my head, but I don't think. Never mind. Let's not go down that road. <laughs> um, so far, they have not told me to get into a white tank and relieve the siege of Washington. So. <laughs> Well, they have, but that white tank is is this novel, right. and I think it t does a pretty good, a better job of than the physical white tank of laying siege to the people who really need to be laid siege to. Well, and there's no way you could get close to them anyway, so why not do it in print? Uh, that's, I think, a far more uh, effective uh, weapon, as uh, the little white voice in the plane will <laughs> has informed you. <laughs> so, t tell us a little bit about your your next book. Well, my next book is, it, it's a very challenging book to write because um, Putnam, my publisher, has made it clear that they don't want another standalone book. Mm -hmm. And I very much want to write a book that's set in the world of physics of the 1930s, which I think is, you know, it's, it was an extraordinary time. My husband is in high energy physics and was kind of at the tail end of that era. So I got to meet a lot of the most amazing 
people who were involved in the quest for the center of the atom. So I have part of what I want to write is about physics in the 30s, and I have a cast of characters there. But I also have to do a front story with VI to keep the publisher happy. So I think the challenge that I face is like I have a head of a fish and a body of a giraffe, and I have to find a way to put them together so that it looks like a real animal that my fisheraf that somebody <laughs> could believe is real. So again, it will be it will be a story that that has this backstory and and the front story, but much different than breakdown in in that the backstory will be actually will be narrated by one of the people who. Um, Oh, so 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 uh, Vi is going to have to take a back seat in this one. She will take more of a back seat. I I think there will be. Um, I haven't figured out the front story. I have so many ideas, and I haven't figured out one that really works. But I just went on the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is a group that really tries to guide public policy in in the use of nuclear power and nuclear weapons, and mm-hmm. and on issues of climate change and um, I don't know in the wake of Fukushima it's very tempting to look at something that shows the revolving door among lobbyists the nuclear regulatory commission power company owners and uh, is that plant in Indian Head Point New York 40 miles from New York City that they just relicensed is that crucible where the reaction takes place really going to last another 25 years or not? Do we have... I sort of see those two stories coming together. Oh, that sounds... Uh, My fi- And the working title is Fisher-Raff. Fisher-Raff. <laughs> well, that sounds every bit as frightening as anyth- anything Mr. King might dream up. <laughs> Both the Fisher-Raff and the, and the <laughs> nuclear incident. I've been speaking with Sarah Paretsky. Her new novel is Breakdown. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Well, thank you. I... Uh, this book really does have a happy ending. It really isn't all bad. It's exciting and, and totally rewarding. It's, it's super fulfilling. Thank you very much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.